welcome again to another Conservative Historian podcast. This one entitled, The Historical Context of Class Envy and the Road to Power, August 2020. In 133 BCE, the Roman people elected Tiberius Gracchus as tribune. Building on centuries of class rivalry, Tiberius's goal was to redistribute state land to the poor. In Mary Beard's Magisterial History of Rome, entitled SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome, the author states, quote, Whatever the economic truth, however, he certainly saw the problem in terms of the displacement of the poor from farming land, unquote. But was this entirely about the poor? Beard contends that behind the populism lay something else. Quote, Some observers at the time, and since, claim that far from being genuinely concerned with the plight of the poor, Tiberius was driven by a grudge against the Senate, which had humiliatingly refused to ratify a treaty he had negotiated. Unquote. The rather high-handed nature of his actions, along with the logical animosity of wealthy Romans and Italians who lost the opportunity to profit from the land, led to the murder of Tiberius in 133 BCE. And Americans lament the state of politics today. Ten years after Tiberius' death, his populism, based on class warfare, was taken up by Gaius Gracchus, his younger brother. Gaius planned to assist the poor of Rome with a grain supplement. This grain provision was not quite welfare in the 20th century understanding, but rather having the state subsidize food purchasing. Like all state-provided giveaways, this program was soon converted from expediency to entitlement, and further expanded by subsequent Roman governments extending into the imperial age. Additionally, because the state provided it, it soon took on the concept of a free provision. However, much of it was subsidized in turn by taxing the provinces or extracting concessions from allies. As Beard states, this was not just about helping the poor. Quote, the debate was about who had a claim on the property of the state and where the boundary lay between private and public wealth. Unquote. And, like his brother Tiberius, Gracchus soon uh, came to a very nasty end when his opponents also had him murdered. And again, compare that with some of the subsequent hyperpartisanship or the polarization of American politics today. Thank God we are not Romans and that our politics have not taken on that kind of hue. From 1836 and for the next 10 years, a group in Britain called the Chartists, led by William Lovett, made a series of demands upon the British government. These demands were for greater political participation, but were based on the needs of the working class. In 1832, voting rights were provided to middle classes in Britain, but depended on property ownership. It was mainly this provision that the Chartists wished to omit. The Charter itself was called the People's Charter. And Lovett is described as, you ready, an activist. Though the United States is blessed, or cursed, with thousands of these creatures in 2020, it was still a rare title in the 19th century. Lovett himself stated, quote, 
the franchise being confined to a small portion of our population and that portion controlled and prejudiced to an incalculable extent by the wealthy few, unquote. These debates, nearly 1,900 years apart, are ones that an avowed socialist or even a Marxist would revel, not just in theoretical or economic terms, but political. When Barack Obama made his infamous You Did Not Build That speech, he touched on the divide between public spheres, such as roads, let's say, leading to a given business, and the private business or company itself. The obvious rejoinder to Obama's arguments is that the road does not get built without the tax revenues collected from the going business. The state can only produce, quote, revenue, unquote, in the context of taxation and redistributes those taxes. Writing in 2019, columnist George Will noted of socialism, quote, this means having government distribute, according to its conception of equity, the wealth produced by capitalism. This conception is shaped by muscular factions, the elderly, government employees unions, the steel industry, the sugar growers, and so on and on and on. Some wealth is distributed to the poor. Most goes to the, quote, neglected, unquote, middle class. Some neglect. The political class talks of little else, unquote. Will is describing American politicians who knew what the Gracchi and Lovett fully understood, that he who does the redistribution gets the votes, and he who gets the votes gets the power. One of the reasons that socialism, and Marxism itself, still prevails, unlike, say, fascism, is that socialism sets aside any debate between public and private spheres. It carries the perception that when everything is public, everything will accrue to the benefit of those who need it most, the poor. In an imagined, revised Obama speech, the phraseology would be that you did not build any of it. The state built everything. If the state builds the roads, and the factory, and runs the farm, and decides who gets what, then the citizen is free to participate in any of these activities without the anxiety of success or failure. As Marx noted in the Communist Manifesto, quote, in place of the old bourgeois society with its classes and class antagonisms, we will build an association in which the free development of each is the condition for the free development of all, unquote. The ability to pick or choose, be an engineer or be an expert in comparative literature and enjoy the same fruits regardless of vocation is pretty heavy, heady stuff for that comparative literature devotee. Maybe not so much for the engineer, but again, in Marxism, these distinctions are not clear. The problem with the utopianism of Marxism is is that what the state can give, the state can then take away. And since the citizen has abrogated their rights to the state, there is no recourse. There is no backstop. This unchecked state power is one of the many reasons why Marxism fails its core goal. In communist countries, the inequality between the have and have-nots always increases, always, as the rulers take more power and more wealth. And then there is the omnipresent fear factor with capitalism. Because there is no clear, 
from the top-down discernible plan, markets will rise, and on occasion, markets will fall. The fact that it was often state intervention, Hoover's Smoot-Hawley tariff or Barney Frank's demand for low-income housing loans are but two examples of where that intervention actually created the, the financial catastrophe. The relationship between state interventions and subsequent economic crises is one of the most underreported stories of economic history. And that is because most historians are liberal and secretly favor socialistic doctrine. Yet the fear factor is in play. In an article for the Financial Times written in 2018, author Adam Tooze notes, quote, the world of globalized free market capitalism we inhabit today has much in common with the world about which Marx wrote in the mid-19th century. It is the Marx of the 19th century who can attract the people of the 21st. What speaks to us today is the true Marx of the mid-Victorian period, not the traduced Marx of the 20th century state ideologies, unquote. Whether it be 2nd century BCE Rome, 19th century Europe, or 21st century United States after the bank meltdown of 2008, there are financial calamities that adversely affect the poorest in society. These are the perpetually fertile grounds for the seeds of socialism and Marxism. Under the aegis of limited government and capitalist systems, humanity enjoys prosperity that would have been unheard of in Marx's 19th century. But there are still fears, and Marxists need to make a living too, so these concerns are stoked, much as they were by Gaius and Tiberius all those centuries ago. Populism can take on many forms, and indeed, fascism was one of those. But in contrast, the worst mass murders of communism have primarily targeted their own people for destruction. Fascism will be ever linked with World War II in general and with Adolf Hitler in particular. For those among the German people that were executed, and there were millions, Hitler also targeted groups of non-Germans. When Hitler began his totalitarian regime in the 1930s, the world looked away, even when he took Austria and Czechoslovakia. Only when he invaded Poland did France and England intervene? And even then, the United States stayed on the sidelines. And of course, the Soviets went into Poland from the other side. But what if Stalin had exercised an openly genocidal campaign against, let's say, the Bulgarians, Iranians, Serbians, or even a group closer to the West, instead of Cossacks and Ukrainians, peoples that were traditionally in what was at that point defined as Russia inextricably linked with the Soviet Union. One of the clear understanding of most Marxist thugs is to keep their oppression and mass murder within their borders, counting on the concept of national absenteeism to prevent other countries from intervening. Another aspect of the endurance of class warfare is it, frankly, is good politics. Whenever a politician whether it be a Tiberius or Gaius Gracchus, a William Lovett or a Bernie Sanders, speaks of inequality, it is always about relative positions and rarely about total outcomes. 
The Rome of the Gracchi day was the preeminent state of its time, having vanquished every foe from the Carthaginians to the Spanish to the Greeks. To be a Roman was infinitely better than to be one of the poor sods from Carthage after, let's say, Cato the Elder got through with it. But the nascent Roman Empire brought incredible wealth to Rome itself, and especially to individual families, such as the Scipios. And the Gracchi could exploit that envy for political gain. The people of the United States today, in 2020, spend $75 billion on sports entertainment and nearly another $50 billion on streaming services. But there are inequalities. A person worth $10 million has one-tenth of 1% of Jeff Bezos' wealth, but that does not make that multimillionaire poor. But talking of relative wealth between, let's say, wealthy Americans and impoverished people, see, in Cuba, does not accrue votes and does not lead to power. So class envy and watered-down Marxism it is. As George Will notes, quote, The temptress of socialism is constantly luring us with the offer. Give up a little bit of your freedom, and I will give you a little more security. As the experience of this century has demonstrated, the bargain, the bargain is tempting, but never pays off. We end up losing both our freedom and our security. Unquote. Writing in National Review in 2014, Tim Kavanaugh noted, quote, Marx has never vanished from the academy. The stubborn refusal of applied Marxism to produce anything but mass murder merely led to efforts to reframe the philosophy, unquote. One of the excellent rejoinders of classes in their Marxist ideology is that it has never been adequately implemented. Given that at least 15 nations have attempted some form of Marxism and all came later to regret the attachment deeply, it is safe to say it will simply not work. Yet this also misses the point of Marxism itself. As Kavanaugh states, quote, Defining the Soviet and Maoist states as failed experiments in social justice misses the point. They were attempt to put the essential violence of Marxism in motion, and they succeeded on a spectacular scale. Violence is not incidental to Marx. It's throughout his work. It's there between tax on vampire capital and Jewish hucksterism. Here's some samples from the man himself. The only antidote to mental suffering is physical pain. The communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. The meaning of peace is the absence of opposition to socialism. Unquote. So the appeal of Marxism is not just about the redistribution of wealth from the wealthy to the poor. There is, for that would-be radical, for that would-be revolutionary, a certain attraction on the violence that Marxism constantly preaches and is inherent within its dogma. In 2020, we have seen protesting in regard to the murder of George Floyd. Many of those protests have turned violent. Many of the leaders of those protests are avowed Marxists. This is not a coincidence. There is that attractiveness of violence 
within the Marxist movement. And some of these organizations are definitely interested in that piece of it. The logical extension of class envy and class warfare is the accumulation of power for the state. The result of collectivization is a disincentive to improve. The result of political or economic coercion is violence. These are horrible things, but they are marvelous things if one wishes to accrue political power. Thank you.